0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshalden, and today we're going to talk to Lindsay M. Campbell about her book comparing libel law in Massachusetts and Nova Scotia in the early 19th century lindsay is an associate professor in law and history at the university of calgary she is also the associate dean of research in the faculty of law again at calgary she teaches canadian and american history as well as canadian legal history and legal theory she has previously published work comparing canadian and american approaches to law and 19th century constitutionalism her book Truth and Privilege, Libel Law in Massachusetts and Nova Scotia, 1820 to 1840, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022 as part of a series. In fact, this volume is the first book ever to be co sponsored by the American Society for Legal History and the Osgoode Society for Canadian Legal History. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Rick mm
0: a big fan of doing comparative history, so I want you to describe to us the advantages of doing comparative legal history, especially the kind of legal history that you do that broadens out to uh, constitutional and social history.
1: What I would say is the big advantage to doing comparative legal history is that it unsettles your taken-for-granted assumptions about how the system you know Works and about um, how how it must have evolved. There's a way in which uh, we as lawyers think about law as sort of naturally moving toward an end that is us. And if you can th- see two places that are close and have had two different pathways, and those pathways have diverged. It it unsettles your sense of sort of the inevitability of yourself, and you can sometimes see the things that are unique about the place that you're in, and things that are maybe less unique than you thought they were, if you do a comparative um, look at things. I think the other thing that this particular study does, not all comparative work would do that, but this one does, is... Kind of draw into, put into relief the the way that national borders uh, have formed, the sort of arbitrariness or the contingency of national borders, that they, they they were the way they were, and at that time they were the way they are now, but people moved across them in, complete, in different ways, and ideas moved across them the way they do now, and that if we just think of history in national terms, we're missing something about the environment in which people actually kind of lived and what they thought their choices were.
0: Yes, and in that respect, I think a little bit about the connection between Boston, for example, and Halifax and the continuing connection between those two cities uh, and uh, wondering whether it was very similar in the uh, 19th century. Now, most of the legal history I've read is not comparative. And I want you to uh, maybe speculate as to why you think this is the case.
1: I think there are a few different reasons for that. One is that legal trailing is really jurisdictional you know we learn about the law of our own place and often the questions that we ask as legal historians are sort of driven by modern day interests and so therefore we tend to look back to our own pasts and I guess another dimension of it is that the archival records are also jurisdictional. You want to go find Nova Scotia's records, you go to Halifax, you might pop into the records in New Brunswick as well, but you probably would confine, you would know that that's where your legal records are going to actually be. So that helps. And I think if you look at um, historiographies of these places too, they tend to have a particular kind of orientation which orients historians towards certain kinds of questions. And so to the extent that earlier histories drive later histories, that's also a factor.
0: So what drew you to the question of freedom of expression in the press and by individuals in the first place? That's
1: probably partly an autobiographical story.
0: And so much the better. Tell us about that.
1: It's so much the better. Uh, Well, you know, when I did my LLM, I, I did it in, on the history of, uh, or a particular episode in the early 20th century uh, of Toronto's history, uh, in which a wonderful show called The Darlings of Paris appeared on the stage and to, attracted an awful lot of opposition as being a scandalous show that had scantily clad women who were wearing beige tights, if you can believe it. And so that was part of my, my interest in expression, was about sort of how do how does one group of people come to think that they should be able to censure the speech of another group of people. And that question kept kind of bumping along in my mind. And then I went back, and there, were, churches were involved. Moral reformers were involved. And I wanted to sort of get at how movements developed. And so I went back in time, and then I found myself at Berkeley And then I thought, well, I'm going to do Canadian history. And then I thought, well, actually, you're going to have to do some American history, too. So um, I started looking at expression in Massachusetts because Massachusetts and Nova Scotia made a kind of nice comparison. I also am quite drawn to and always have been to really messy areas of law, property trusts, common law areas where the There are lots of um, of tricky little rules, and libel law is fun that way because all the action's in the defense. um, And I didn't want to get into the First Amendment jurisprudence, even though I was in the United States, because I felt like it was so driven by modern-day problems that it it was going to interfere with my desire to know what happened in the past. So I I kind of fell into it partly by interest and partly by various different considerations.
0: Most of our listeners have little or no legal background. So please tell us what the word libel actually means, and as well as what the law of libel is today, uh, and what it was in the context of the early 19th century.
1: Yeah, it's a complicated uh, question. And I think one of the things that I try and do in this book is poke a bit at what at the, the shifting meaning of the word, what I find in that period and earlier so early 19th century and earlier is that a libel is often and it's a noun it's usually a noun and it seems to be and it is a, a kind of a text that's legally offensive or that is understood to be legally offensive that should be viewed as legally offensive. it's it's a it's a label it's a pejorative label. Um, it's also uh, a legal classification for the text that is legally problematic. Um, a court could take a jurisdiction over a libel, but also um, a legislature could could d- discipline someone for publishing a libel. There were also um, old causes of action, so civil causes of action in libel and slander. slanders, oral, libel is more or less textual and um, so those uses are out there as well Um, criminal law used the term libel to refer to a text that was objectionable in a variety of different ways it might be blasphemous or scandalous or seditious or defamatory uh, different ways in which this legally obnoxious text could offend. So I think what's happening in that period, and what I argue, is that we're getting treatise writers pulling together these different areas of law and assembling it into a coherent whole, making sense of it. Because it was a period when uh, English law in particular was um, repressive towards speech. There had been a uh, long-sustained Campaign of um, of concern around the, associated with the Napoleonic Wars, and there had been a lot of um, repressive legislation. And so I think by this point they're sort of on the defensive in some cases, and the treatise writers are sort of weighing in and saying, "Look, let's let's make sense of this body of law. Let's take the terrible edges off of it and make it okay to live under." And so they're making treatises that kind of make sense of an incoherent body and also kind of settle it down a little bit. So it's got a, it's doing a bunch of work, that word.
0: Right. So you described the period, particularly the 1830s, as significant in terms of the evolution of the law of libel. So what was changing in this time period? part of what you describe as a constitutional parting of the ways between Britain and the United States. But what what really was happening here that would have um, enormous impact later?
1: Well, I guess I would identify a couple of different things. One is that there's an ideal of Democracy, The Americans might call it Jacksonian democracy. Um, in Britain, there's a Reform Act of 1832. In Nova Scotia, we're seeing uh, the rise of ideas that will quickly lead to responsible government. So an idea that the people ought to be considered potentially self-governing, and they might make mistakes, but... They should still be listened to. Public opinion matters. Uh, Government is supposed to respond to people. So that's part of it. And of course, if government's supposed to respond to people, but people say nasty things about government, um, you have potential for uh, temptation to use legal strategies to control expression you don't like. So part of it is this, what I think of as a democratizing moment in history. I think a reason for the sort of parting of ways between the two traditions, American and Canadian, has to do with a written constitution in the United States. And I suspect that they used courts quite a lot before that in Massachusetts. But courts are definitely, by this point, a place where you bring problems. And there's much more litigation over expression, both criminal and civil, than there was in Nova Scotia in absolute terms and in proportional terms and if you look at compared to the population and so forth. So it seems like one of the things that's happening is that you take cases over expression to court and you expect judges to uh, make decisions. Now, judges don't necessarily think that defamation law ought to be lightened up or that people ought to get away with defaming other people. But nevertheless, courts are a place where these kinds of decisions are made. And so uh, it it does seem like it's a, that there's sort of a parting of ways over the roles of courts in these kinds of cases and probably in other kinds of cases as well.
0: Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go back to the term uh, privilege that's used in the title and content in your book. And you've defined libel, but can you help us understand this term privilege and how it's used in the legal context, both uh, in the uh, early part of the 19th century and and, uh, whether it's used in the same way today? To start with
1: today... The term privilege gets used in a couple of different ways. It, it, you know, a lawyer, if you are, somebody's going to sue you and you go to a lawyer to talk about your options, that conversation is privileged, meaning that no one could make the lawyer disclose it in court. So that's, that's one kind of privilege. Uh, another kind of privilege uh, pertains to a legislature or parliament, which could, has um, powers over what occurs within its doors. So there was a Supreme Court of Canada case a couple of years ago um, that arose from a situation in Quebec in which the security guards were using their security cameras to, uh, well, do some surveillance of a cam- of an apartment across the street that they ought not to have been involved with at all. And the president of the Quebec National Assembly fired them and said that's an exercise of legislative privilege. Um, so the Supreme Court of Canada. Disagreed with them, but anyway, um, so that power of a legislature to take control over its own space, its safety, its its practices, is another exercise of privilege. So, but the, in the way that it arises in this period that I'm talking about is is kind of bifurcated. One is the legislature taking action usually against a critic. To discipline that person, possibly put the person in jail, um, which we might also describe as an exercise of, con- of the contempt power, um, and the other way is uh, an evolution of an idea that speech on the floor of a par- of a legislature should be protected against legal action. So of course, this is related to the solicitor-client thing that I started with. Um, so certain kinds of speech are protected against legal action, and this protection happens because of the circumstances in which it takes place. So parliamentary privilege is, was to protect legislatures, legislators against the Crown. Um, speech in court, obviously, is to get as much sort of candid, um, truthful um, evidence out there as you can. And in this period, we see the parliamentary version of that making its way outside of those kinds of boundaries into other kinds of cases. So we start to see um, a qualified privilege that arises. So if you and I are in a business and there's a third party and one of us says something, you know, I say, Greg is is a bankrupt and I tell that to a third party and we're all dealing together and we're all perhaps involved in the beer trade because that's a key case. Um, You then can't sue me if I tell that third party who needed to know that you were bankrupt because it's a reasonable context for me to tell the third, to warn that third party about your finances. And that kind of um, those sort of business transactions, that kind of business context um, and contexts in which someone has an interest in knowing and other people have an interest in, um, in saying, perhaps there's a duty to say on one side and an interest in knowing on the other side, those kinds of contexts start to make it into law as protected speech. And in Nova Scotia, we see that kind of protection having more um, sort of legal traction than we have in... Um, Massachusetts, where they were already on another path to um, finding that truth was the thing that ought to set you free. Like you could say anything you want, as long as it's true. That was the idea. It wasn't actually what happened, but it is what people thought was should happen. So they were more focused on truth, and Nova Scotia is more focused on privilege.
0: Now. Uh, we at the Champlain Society are very interested in primary sources and our mission is to publish documentary sources. And I note that your core primary source for the book was unpublished court records. Can you describe what these are to the listener?
1: Um, yeah. Um, of course, when a person starts a lawsuit, the person uh, has some sort of initiating procedure, a writ, or perhaps there's an information or an indictment in a criminal case. And the paperwork um, starts to multiply, as anybody who's been involved in these things would have found. So there's a sort of a claim, and then there's a response, and and then there might be a counterclaim and more of a response, and then there would be a process for getting in a civil case anyway, getting discoveries on the table. So there are in a lot of these files in Massachusetts. um, Depositions, so um, evidence taken on oath outside of the court. Um, They did them a lot in some parts of Massachusetts because of how far people had to travel to go to court. So anyway, you can get a lot of records um, that are just in the file. And the file is nicely folded and packaged with a string and lives in the archive. And these Cases didn't, many of these cases only went to a jury, so there's no record of the case, um, there's no reported judgment of the case. Even if they went to appeal, um, the trial judge's uh, notes, there'd just be a short note saying this is what I decided and this is why. And it isn't until the court of appeal has made a judgment that we might end up with what we would call a reported case. In other words, the court of appeal has taken the issues that are on appeal and then reasoned it all the way through. So much legal history works from reported cases, which are the judgments of the courts of appeal. But there's an awful lot of legal work that happens way before it gets to the court of appeal. Of course, most cases never get there. So if you want to know what people are actually doing in courts and why they're, what they want and what they do and what arguments, to some extent, what arguments they make, you, you have to go into these other Um, kinds of records. You can also figure out how much it cost, how long it took, other kinds of issues that help you figure out how people use courts.
0: Now, uh, one of the key differences that you've already mentioned between the two jurisdictions is that litigation on libel and slander was much more prevalent in Massachusetts than Nova Scotia. Uh, What I'd like to know is how extreme was this difference? Uh, And can you tell us why the what you call the rather middling residents in Massachusetts were so much more litigious than their counterparts in Nova Scotia.
1: So as to actual numbers, my sample has about 105, I think, civil cases from Massachusetts. And I used Suffolk and I used Worcester so not all the counties in Massachusetts. And I took all the cases I found in Supreme Judicial Court, and I sampled um, about every fifth year from 1823 to 1840 for the lower court decisions. Comment, please. And so this is a sampling effort of me reading through books and finding cases. In Nova Scotia... I went to the archives in Halifax and um, there were, and I looked through all the records that I could get my hands on. The records are not as as tidy. There's been problems with records in Nova Scotia, but you know, I have, I have, I think pretty much the whole population of cases for Halifax Um, and there are like 20 or something cases in Nova Scotia for the whole period. So the number is much smaller. And not only that, but they cluster in between about 1821 and 1825. The most of them are then. And then you just get a few, like six or something after that. So it's really small numbers and only a couple in Pictou and I don't think there were any in Yarmouth. I looked. The, the records, as they say, it's a bit hard to pick them apart, but the numbers are very, very
0: small. So in, in all the court cases that you've reviewed, in both jurisdictions. Uh, can you briefly describe one of the more fascinating cases, maybe? Uh, tell us a bit of a story about it. What happened? Why it happened?
1: Uh, I have two favorites, but on the civil side, which I think is maybe more um, revealing, um, in Franklin County in Massachusetts, there's a young woman called Jeanette Miller, who's about 19, and she lives with her maternal uncle, Hiram Bag. And there's a young man boarding with them called Daniel Parrish, who's a lawyer. He's maybe 30-ish. And who knows how this all starts, but the episode is they're off in a cutter on their way to a party, or on their way back from a party, and Daniel he says that she's sort of fussing about him she's going to put her arms around him and there are others in the cutter as well and then he pushes her out of the cutter and jumps on top of her and um there's so there's a a suggestion of a sexual assault that has definitely defined limits and she sues let's see her uncle, I think, doesn't like to Hiram Bag. Uncle kicks, or sorry, Hiram Bag doesn't like Daniel Parish, kicks him out of the house. So we have a case of the uncle suing Parish for the board, room and board that he owes him. We have Miller suing uh, Parish for uh, for calling her, saying she's been sexually. Um, too liberated, too free, suggestive. He doesn't ever actually say that he had sex with her, but he says that he could have if he'd wanted to. It might be because he was probably engaged at the time. And then he sues her and her uncle for making allegations of sexual assault. And then there are other people who are also involved that call him a bad lawyer in various ways. And all these cases are happening at the same time in this one county court. And if you follow the money... You, because what, the way they started these cases, these defamation cases and others in Massachusetts is a really of attachment. So I say my reputation is worth $2,000 and I can sue you for $2,000 and tie up $2,000 worth of property. So Bag had property. Parrish didn't have property. Parrish probably even spent a little bit of time in jail because he didn't have any property. And all these actions are hooking property. And then finally, the case works its way up. And the only one that's ever reported is Miller against um, Parrish, which she won. She got damages. But what I found so fascinating about it was this interlock of actions clearly designed strategically to um, make money or make people's lives miserable. Um, And I think you see how people are using courts. In, those, in that cases, it's not just about vindicating the reputation. It's something strategic. It's something about how this is a place you can use to get what you want, which might be revenge.
0: As well as a bit of money, obviously, too.
1: As well as a bit of money. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So can you describe the similarities and the differences in the arguments against unrestricted expression in Massachusetts and Nova Scotia?
1: Well, both places were of the view that, uh, at least, the respectable opinion was of the view that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't just say anything at all about people. That there were matters that were private and didn't deserve to be publicized. But Massachusetts was in the grip of the rising anti-slavery sentiment, and also other kinds of um, reform movements, um, anti-gambling, anti-alcohol, and also changing religious organizations. And that made it harder, I think, for people in public life to know exactly where the lines were around what was sort of private and what was public. So um, what... You, you get a lot more press about people calling, uh, well, calling someone mount a mountebank who's an anti-Mason, for example. That's another anti. And so, because there's so much friction in the social world, and it's felt that the stakes are very high. there's... You know, anti-slavery is going to threaten the union. Um, uh, Immoral behavior and the universalists are going to threaten people's souls. The stakes are very, very high. Uh, The sense of what you can't say seems to be, um, it's it's more heated in Massachusetts. And there are, I'm not sure that, I guess more people thought they should be able to take their concerns to court, but I think they also just went to court more often is another thing. Um, but there's a lot more tension around expression in Massachusetts. Nova Scotians also felt that there were limits on what they ought to say, but I'm not sure they were as tempted to break through those limits.
0: Right. So there were clear boundaries on freedom of expression in both jurisdictions uh, due to the circumstances of the time, as well as the, what I will call the sort of values or the moral views of of people at that time. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I think I would say there were clear sort of normative boundaries anyway. Um, I think the legal boundaries are a little harder to define. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. So tell us, what are you working on right now? What's your next book?
1: Privilege. Um, I am working on a book that explores this um, the tension between courts and legislatures Uh, in Britain and Jamaica and Newfoundland uh, over their respective call, uh, sort of claims to being protectors of rights. Um, The House of Commons in Britain at this time was imagining itself as a body responsive to public opinion and was, there's a very big case uh, called Stockdale and Hansard in which they moved to try and protect their publisher, Hansard, against um, a defamation case.
0: And what time period, sorry?
1: Um, it starts about 1838, so similar, but just a shade later. And it there's a real showdown between the Court of King's Bench and the House of Commons over which one gets to decide if he can bring an action or not. And then they're related, but not the same kinds of issues arising in the colonies in Newfoundland and Jamaica, um, because the colonial context aligns courts with the crown in different ways. So I'm looking at those questions of boundaries between crown and, or between courts and, and legislatures.
0: Well, Lindsay, I look forward to interviewing you on that book at some point in the future. And I wanna thank you for joining us today.
1: I will look forward to that too. And thank you very much.
0: Our guest today was Lindsay Campbell. Professor Campbell is the author of Truth and Privilege, Libel Law in Massachusetts and Nova Scotia, 1820 to 1840. Her book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022 as part of the Studies in Legal History series. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support the podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. And if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We also want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on March 8, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.